Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, rotor operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long term, not just survive. If you have an AI, for example, that's being used by a bank and decides to deny someone for a loan, for example, well, who's accountable for that decision? You don't have a human that you can appeal to and that you can reason with. Or to use a travel example, insurance companies are already using AI to decide claims. So if an AI turns down your claim for travel insurance, what do you do? Who's accountable for that decision? So I think keeping the focus on accountability, making sure that you're not using AI as a replacement for human decision-making, you're using it as a tool to enable and empower the humans mm. within your organization has to be central to the way that you approach this as a business. I think it's about also being accountable to a very wide range of stakeholders through those decisions. You have to think about accountability both to your customers, your employees, but also kind of the wider public at large. And you know, one of the ways that you can demonstrate that is through engagement with the kind of emerging regulatory landscape around this space. Today we'll be talking about a subject that has been requested from you out there, but also a subject that is on many hospitality leaders' minds right now. It's AI and its impact on the hospitality industry. And to help me unpick this, I found you a great guest. Meet Fergus Navaratnam Blair, who is a research director at the National Research Group. In this conversation, we'll take a deep dive into what AI is and how it will impact hospitality and travel in the coming years. We will also unpick what it means for consumers and in what degree they trust it. We also discuss, as we are doing more and more AI adoption, what the impact will be on our jobs in hospitality and how we as leaders can use AI to make better business decisions. If you want to get more insights on what Maverick leaders know and do, as well as more backstage info on the show, sign up for the weekly newsletter of Maverick Talk. Five minutes each week that could transform your leadership and business forever. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com and sign up there. Let's get into the world of AI. Enjoy. Today, we'll be talking about a subject that has been given a huge amount of coverage in the media over the summer. And now it's also starting a view, and it's also probably been before we have this conversation day or before the summer, a huge importance for decision maker, owners, people in business, in your life. We're going to be talking about the famous word AI. And actually, we haven't had any conversations about that here on the show. I've been studying a lot myself, especially the whole exit of X senior people in Google that has been out on different media platforms talking about, you know, the, the both the great, the upside 
with AI, but also some of the challenges that's coming ahead. And today I have Fergus as a guest, and he's an expert in the travel and hospitality side of AI, and then seen a lot of different use cases of AI, both when it goes really well, and also you can probably talk a bit about some of the challenges that comes around with, with AI and implementing that into to your business. So welcome to the show, Fergus. I'm really excited about today's conversation. There's so much to cover. We probably don't have enough time. I know. <laughs> I appreciate that. There's definitely a lot we can uh, get into. But Michael, thank you very much for having me on. Very excited to dig into these topics with you. Yeah. And, and Fergus, for a bit of context and background, can you talk a bit about you know your journey prior to what you're doing today, but actually what led today and actually how did this whole AI thing come into to play as well? Yes, of course. So just to give a little bit of context, I'm a research director at National Research Group. We are a research agency that specializes in, I like to say, the kind of intersection of culture, media, and technology. So historically, we were founded back in the 1980s. Historically, we worked primarily in the film and TV industry, worked a lot with most of the big Hollywood studios, and then later, most of the big streaming platforms doing things like content testing, helping them understand their audiences, you know, that sort of stuff. But then over the past sort of decade or so, we've expanded into adjacent areas as well and started doing a lot, uh, a lot of work in more of the kind of culture and lifestyle space. So you mentioned hospitality, that's been a big area for us. We've done a lot of research work with some of the major hotel brands, airlines, travel search engines, and, you know, particularly the brands are a little bit more at the tech end of the spectrum within the hospitality industry. But then outside of that, we've also done work in sports, in gaming, in social media, you know, across the whole sort of spectrum of that kind of culture, lifestyle, tech space. And obviously, you know, the topic that we're discussing today, AI has been hugely relevant to all of our clients, not just in the travel industry, but also within media entertainment. I mean, we've all seen the the writer's strike and the actor's strike in Hollywood at the moment, you know, AI has been a key issue within all of that and, you know, across really the entire, the entire spectrum of clients that we work with. So within National Research Group, I look after our thought leadership practice. So the part of the business that produces sort of public facing research where we're exploring how the public are responding to different themes and different trends. And, you know, AI has been one of the big things that we've been tracking over the past 12 months. We put out a study back in, back in May of this year, we put out a study looking at specific applications for AI in the travel industry. How willing are people to embrace that? Since then, we put out a number of other studies on AI in different industries. We've done some more general work looking at the concept of sort of ethical AI or responsible AI, how you kind of navigate some of the concerns that consumers have in this space. But yes, it's definitely a huge issue and one that there's a million different ways of approaching. And yeah, excited to dive into you, dive into it with you today. Yeah, I think that, that's such really good content because I think we need to start to talk a bit about, you know, maybe it's yours or the National Research Group's definition of AI. Because I can think, see lots of conversation derailing because we haven't set the the shared understanding of what AI is, artificial intelligence, okay, of course, but what does that actually mean in, in your words? Yeah, I think that's such a good question because the word gets thrown around 
the word AI gets thrown around so often right now. It does, I think, often create a lot more confusion than it solves. Mm. Than it solves, I think, particularly you know since the end of last year, there's been so much money flowing into this space. So much venture capital money being plowed into AI startups. Everyone has an incentive to call their products AI now, even when actually they're not really in a meaningful way. So yeah, I think it's important that we kind of establish some baselines around what it is that we're actually talking about here. I think broadly speaking, the best way of thinking about it is that AI refers to the family of technologies that attempts to replicate mechanically the kind of problem solving, reasoning, perceptive, creative tasks typically associated with human thinking. In other words, trying to move away from the kind of basic computational processes, you know, precise inputs in, precise outputs back kind mm. of computational approach that was historically what we would think of when we talked about computing. Now, if you want to be a bit more specific, generally when we're talking about AI these days, what we're really talking about is machines that use deep learning algorithms. So just for some historical context, there used to be a number of different approaches for trying to teach machines to, to think. Yeah, the field of AI really dates back all the way to the 1950s. There have been a number of different approaches that were tried to create a meaningful artificial intelligence. But from about the early 2010s or so, deep learning really emerged as the most successful way of doing this. It took over the entire industry, really. And the approach behind deep learning is you're using artificial neural networks. That is a, a logic model within the computer that replicates the kind of neuron structures that we see in organic brains. And you take that model and you train it by exposure to huge volumes of data. And sometimes that data is manually labeled by humans. So for example, if you want to teach a machine to learn how to recognize pictures of horses, you would feed it thousands upon thousands of pictures of horses and thousands of pictures of not horses. And it learns how to identify horses through that process. So mm. you're not kind of telling the machine how to think, you're letting it learn how to think for itself. And as a result of that, um, one of the hallmarks of modern artificial intelligence is it's very often um, unexplainable. That is, even the people that are building these systems don't know exactly how they work behind the scenes. They don't know what the logic that the machine is using is. You're just teaching it to create that logic for itself. And that's really become the dominant model within, within the field of AI over the past uh, decade or so. And, and what are, you know, what are some of the advantages? I think that's also when you talk about like, what are some of the, let's start with the positive and then we can go in with the more ethical after what was like, what are some of the positive, you know, attributes with AI? Because I can already see what you're saying is that here is, you know, what the machine can do a million times faster to do than you, a research piece writing, you've seen that if you've used the tools, I've been trying out different tools, chat, TPC, Notion has an AI kind of tool and lots of others that generate pictures as well. And I'll try lots of these tools and it's impressive what they can come up with. I think I saw the other day as well, an e-commerce site with, you know, branded items, you know, t-shirts, jumpers, bags, like generated your store within quicker than ever and closer to if you put in your brand, in principle, your brand name and took your brand from your website and created a shop that almost looked identically to your website. Yeah, you raise a really good point. I mean, a lot of the recent excitement in this space 
sort of from sort of the end of last year or so has really been specifically about this subfield of generative AI, which is where you are training an AI based on input data, you're teaching it to create new content in the same format as its input data. So, you know, something like GPT-4, for example, OpenAI's product, that's trained on immense amounts of written text. And then you can use that to create new text based on user prompts. Or you see things like Midjourney or Dali that can do the same for images. This sort of specific field of generative AI, actually using AI to create content, has really exploded over the past sort of 11, 12 months or so. And I think, as you say, there are certain things that it is really good, really good at. I think it is really good at identifying patterns in large volumes of data in a way that humans can't really do. I think it can, you know, when we're looking at some of the more like behind the scenes applications of AI, I think when you have those kind of cases where you're just trying to sort of speed up the process of finding trends, of predicting, of making forecasts, you know, some of this AI, some of these new models are incredibly good at that. I think one thing that we have to remember though, when we're talking about that, when we're talking about that field of generative AI specifically is that it isn't magic. You know, ultimately these machines are trained on input data and they are going to pick up the inaccuracies and the biases that exist in that input data. And there's been a lot of research looking at, you know, the way in which large language models like ChatGPT can very easily, when you're asking them to create content, they can very easily reproduce falsehoods or create new falsehoods or reproduce, you know, gender biases or racial biases that we see that we see already existing out there in the world. So I think, yes, this kind of generative AI is really what's exciting at the moment and what a lot of the use cases I'm sure we're going to be talking about later really revolve around. But I do think we need to keep that in mind that it isn't magic, that it does have very real limitations to it. And I think being aware of those limitations is critical to finding the right use cases and deploying it in the right way. Did you want to mention any of the, the limitations now? Because before we go into the, because of course we want to transition into the specific around hospitalities, because I think these limitations is it's quite good because there's a lot of noise about, you know, the generative AI, as you call it, it's really going to transform things right now, but it is limitations as I understand as well to what it can do. Yeah, I think I'm sure we'll, we'll, they'll come up as we kind of go through the conversation, but I think that, you know, we mentioned already the problem of biases. We mentioned already the problem of inaccuracies. I think there's been a lot written recently about the specific phenomenon of AI hallucination, which is where an AI creates new information that is not in its training data. So this is one of the problems with a lot of these, the recent wave of large language models like ChatGPT is they are often very confidently wrong about things. They can be very persuasive because they're very eloquent and they have a sort of authoritative tone to them, but that doesn't actually necessarily always mean that the content that they're sharing, the information that they're sharing is actually correct. And I think it's interesting we talk about limitations. I think partly it's not so much a limitation of the AI itself as it is a limitation of the way that we think about it and use it. I think that you know, what we're seeing recently is we're still very, for most people out there, we're still very close to the beginning of the adoption curve to these sorts of technologies. People are still experimenting with them, still figuring out how to use them in their daily lives, still learning about them. And I think because of that, there's a mismatch between expectations and reality sometimes. Mm. So I think that, you know, a lot of people 
see a tool like ChatGPT, for example, and they assume it works like a search engine. They assume that they can just take what they know about search engines and apply that to ChatGPT. And so if ChatGPT tells me something, well, it's like if Google told me something, I can believe it, I can trust it. But actually, that it doesn't quite work the same way. It works very differently, in fact, and it has different use cases and it has different advantages and disadvantages compared to a search engine. And I think as we get moved through time, as people become a little bit more familiar with the technology, use it a little bit more, we'll start to see a bit of a mindset shift where people actually learn what those limitations are and adjust their behavior around them a little bit more. And that's super interesting because I have been using it to to brainstorm, for example, some of the questions for this interview I've used. And I actually, oh, that, that, that's, that was like 20 great questions, but I actually had to copy them out and then edit again because it had to be in truth to the conversation we have had. So first of all, there was a disconnect. And also it was just, it was not the right question to ask, even though you're trying to give very specific instruction to this, you know, computer actually written out from your, the, the pre, pre conversation we've had as well. And there was still like missing. I'd also tried to use it for the show notes and tried to use it for some, some blog posts, some LinkedIn posts. And actually also the hashtag was very, they were not the right hashtag. They were not the one. If you spend a bit of time on what really boosts your engagement on LinkedIn, that was not the right hashtag. And also the content was wrong. Lucky was an, an area where I had enough knowledge to know I shouldn't post that because that's wrong in a way. So it's really, really interesting. And then people are talking about how they can start writing books for you, how they can do all those things. But again, it will might be, you really need to, you know, use it as, as I see it right now, as I want to use, learn how to use these tools as an assistant, an idea generator in a way more than the exact truth. That's, that's how I see it right now. How can, how can hospitality then, or how is hospitality travel and hospitality influenced by, by this whole shift? Because, you know, the first thing I heard was like, oh, we, we're going to use all the human workforce in hospitality because of AI, which I don't believe is the truth. But like, what, what have you seen in your studies and what is it, the key trends been? Yeah. So if we're talking broadly about the entire spectrum of use cases of AI within the hospitality industry, I think we can group them into two broad categories. So mm -hmm. in the one, on the one hand, you have the sort of behind the scenes use cases. So this is less about generative AI specifically, although it can be, but more about the kind of entire family of AI products that have been coming to market over the past sort of few years. So, you know, if you think about what goes on behind the scenes within the industry, there's a huge range of tasks that AI can help to either speed up or improve the accuracy, improve the efficiency of. So things like, um, you know, we mentioned earlier that AI is particularly good at finding trends or forecasting based on data. So things like predictive maintenance for aircraft or forecasting demand for hotels or restaurants or museums, analyzing customer feedback, you know, when you have huge volumes of unstructured customer feedback and you're just trying to distill from that what are the key points that I need to be taking away from this? You know, we, you know, our firm works in market research and we use AI now to help kind of scroll through, to help kind of distill massive volumes of unstructured data and sort of turn that into here are the key action items. But also things like improving accuracy of weather forecasting, fraud detection, detecting fraudulent bookings, you know, all these sorts of very kind of process oriented, very technical behind the scenes tasks. So that's kind of one category. 
And then the other category, and to my mind, this is the more interesting or at least the more transformative one, mm. are the cases where you are having a customer directly interact with some sort of AI. So, you know, for example, using a conversational AI like GPT-4 to act as a sort of virtual travel guide. And you can imagine a, a whole range of different scenarios, you know, from the very specific and targeted, you know, I'm in my hotel, I have a specific issue that I need to address through to the more general, you know, offering advice on destinations, helping to plan trips, looking up information, creating travel itineraries, you know, basically all of the sort of hyper-personalization tasks that previously were only really available through a human travel advisor, you know, so it's taking that kind of level of personal service and personalization that was previously only available to relatively affluent travelers who could afford those kind of resources and making that more accessible, mm. making that more democratized almost. And I think that's the, um, yeah, that's definitely the more sort of interesting and transformative kind of approach. There's different ways of doing that in practice. You can either, you know, you can go about it two ways. You can either add travel specific functionality to existing AI platforms. So for example, ChatGPT, for example, has a number of plugins that you can, you can apply to it to help with very specific tasks. And some of the very first ones that rolled out were from Kayak and Expedia. Those rolled out in March. So enabling you to kind of use these general purpose AI tools for travel tasks specifically. Or you can go the other way and you can build travel specific AI tools through with its own bespoke interface or as part of some existing travel brand or travel service. So Expedia has done that as well. For example, they launched conversational functionality within their travel app back in April. I think they rolled out the beta of that. Booking.com have rolled out their own kind of in-website AI travel planner. TripAdvisor has done the same. And uh, yeah, I think we're going to see several more come out over the next few months. I think it's interesting as well. I think in many ways, travel can be the pioneer for a lot of this stuff. I think travel is a very interesting use case for this kind of conversational AI because, you know, they are relatively complex problems that consumers are trying to solve. But compared to some of the other industries where people have been talking about AI, like medicine or law, for example, the stakes aren't quite as high. There isn't quite as much risk involved. You know, people have been talking about using AI to help diagnose patients or to mm. file legal briefs, for example. And that's the sort of stuff where if you make a mistake, you're really, you know, putting people's lives at risk. Whereas travel, yes, it can be high stakes relative to an individual, but you don't quite have the same level of the same level of reputational risk, the same level of danger that you have in some of those fields. So I think it's interesting back in June, Amazon Web Services announced that they were going to make a hundred million dollar investment to help to help fund companies finding use cases for AI and incorporating it into their businesses. And when they launched that, they had four initial partners and two of those were in the travel industry, Ryanair mm. and Lonely Planet. So if you look at the people that are building AI and deploying it like Amazon, they're very clearly thinking about, you know, travel is a real good test case for this. It's what I can use to kind of demonstrate the power of this technology before it starts making its way into other industries. And I think it's really interesting you talking about this travel assistant, because I think I, you know, read a, a couple of books, both non-fiction and fiction books, where there is these stories about, you know, AI and how actually, you know, in, in maybe 40 years, you have your own assistant 
there's an AI assistant that helps you with organizing your cinema trips, organizing your tickets for, for an airline, whatever it is, they do all those things, you know, a normally a human would do today by either tapping things into the laptop, doing searches or booking things with meetings with a phone, you'd have this personal AI assistant. And I think also like that's really where you're solving lots of productivity issues and wasted time, I guess. And therefore it's also interesting solving that with the con conversational AI, if you can do that, because then you can, if you can do it in a travel situation where people are moving in so many different places than one, you really can scale that into other industries and you can then, you know, take the risk out of it slowly, as you said. So I think that's super, super interesting. Mm. No, definitely. I, I think it's also an interesting question to consider, you know, when you're talking about those kind of travel assistants, how people are actually going to use them in different contexts. Because I think one thing that we do need to keep in mind in this conversation is that, you know, for a lot of people, a lot of the kind of admin tasks around travel are actually very exciting and fun. You know, a lot of people get as much enjoyment out of mm. looking up destinations or, you know, planning an itinerary as they do out of the trip itself. It's almost a way yeah. to like extend the travel experience, right? And so I think we have to be conscious of the fact that people aren't just going to want to hand everything off to an AI. I think we can kind of split it into two kind of distinct camps of use cases. So on the one hand, you have the kind of things that are seen by most people as a relatively boring chore, like a, a necessary evil for the travel experience. So I'm thinking things here like um, handling processing visas or checking into your hotels, your flights, or budgeting for many people can fall into that camp, you know, those sorts of activities. And that's the sort of stuff where people might be willing to just completely hand it over to an AI. They want a kind of hands-off experience. They don't want to have to think about it. They want the AI to take care of all of the busy work for them. But then in the other category, you have the stuff that is a little bit more fun, more exciting for people. So things like looking up attractions, choosing a destination, making your itinerary, researching the local culture, you know, all of these sorts of activities that actually are quite an important part of the travel experience for people. And I think, you know, it's not that people aren't going to want to use AI in those kind of contexts. I mean, we've done, we've done some research on this. We've seen that people are willing to use AI in those kind of contexts, but they want to use it in a slightly different way. They don't want to just hand over all of the thinking to the AI. They want to use it, well, coming back to what you said earlier, they want to use it as a brainstorming partner. They want to use mm. it as an assistant who can give them ideas and can, you know, bounce ideas back and forth with them and respond to their suggestions and respond to their questions and, and, and feedback and all that sort of stuff. But they don't want to feel like the AI is making the decisions for them or doing the work for them in a way that they might with some of those more admin tasks. So yeah, I, I definitely think this whole space of AI travel assistance is really interesting and, and you know, potentially a huge market, but we do just need to be cognizant of the fact that those assistants, people want to use them in different, very different ways in very different contexts. And that's super interesting, Fergus, because I myself was off for a little trip with the family in the weekend and, and suddenly we had to change the plans and we started Googling. We specifically needed something that could fulfill the needs of the kids. And that's where the Googling process became complex. We were standing there. We wanted to take a reasonable, quick decision. It was around food. It was about activity for the kids and where to go, to go to that location and that location. 
and you can Google and go on website, but it takes longer time. And then you have the kids standing there getting impatient with you. And I think that's really where, you know, I could see having that little travel assistant just say, oh, well, nine out of 10 would go to this place. They have really high rating on the kids' food. Da, 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 da. And there's some activities nearby you can do with them afterwards. These are the three top activities for kids. Boom. And then you will easier, you know, get to that point where, you know, exactly help you on the spot, on the journey, just because your schedule changed a little bit, you know, or finding the right hotel or, or something like that, especially really on these on demand. I can see for myself, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great? There was an AI that could help me here because then we will solve the problem maybe in 10 seconds instead of 20 minutes. Absolutely. You raise a really good point. And I think it's not just speed, but also customization that an AI can offer. I think, you know, if you took a hundred random people and asked them to plan a holiday to, I don't know, Barcelona, say using yeah. Google, a lot of them are going to start by putting in the same search request, right? They're going to say, you know, fun things to do in Barcelona, best hotels in Barcelona, best food in Barcelona, all these sorts of queries. And then they might start specifying it a little bit more with more repeated Google searches. But a lot of them are kind of going down the same pathways. Whereas if you took that same, those same hundred people and asked them to plan that trip using, using an AI like ChatGPT or one of these various travel specific products, you're going to very quickly get a lot more divergence and customization. You know, you're able to say to an AI in a way that you can't to a search engine, you know, what's something that I can do with my kids, but also, you know, one of my kids is this old and she has an allergy and my other kid doesn't, doesn't like walking too much, or, you know, I have back issues or, you know, you can be very, very specific. You can give it all of the information. You can go back and forth with it and refine it in a much more nuanced and much more personal way. And then as a result of that, you know, you can end up with a travel experience that ideally feels a lot more customized to you and your needs. And, you know, that could ultimately in the long run be quite a good thing for some of the, you know, smaller, more niche attractions, hotels, destinations, et cetera, because you have people finding that sort of stuff in a way that they wouldn't if they were just all going through the same set of search queries on Google or on um, TripAdvisor or Booking.com or whatever. What about the, the consumer? Does, you know, your end user, your customer and travel and hospitality are one of the most important. Do they actually, you know, you sound, that's great. You know, we're solving some really important customer problems and business problems there. But do they actually trust using AI as where we are now? You said it's a very early adaption curve as well. And you already indicated that we might not want to use it for everything. And do they trust it? And what about my personal data and all that? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think one thing we have to keep in mind when we're talking about this is that a lot of the discourse in this space, you know, if you're reading news articles or, or watching the news about AI, a lot of the discourse tends to become very polarized. You hear from either the like true AI evangelists who are saying this technology is wonderful, it's going to change everything, or the really hardcore skeptics, you know, the people who are saying it's going to end humanity, we need to stop it, we need to stop AI research now. But in reality, you know, the vast majority of consumers are not at either of those extremes. You know, I mentioned earlier, a national research group, we've done a number of AI research projects, not just in the travel industry, but also in, in other industries. And what we've seen very consistently is that the majority of people, to the extent that they're paying attention to this technology, 
are AI pragmatists. So they're open to it. They can see some exciting applications for it. They you know, might have played around with it a little bit and they can see that it's a really powerful technology. They're willing to try it, but they still need to be convinced it's really as transformative as people say they are. And they need to be convinced that there are the right safeguards in place to protect them if they're going to be using this technology. So when we measured this back in, back in April, I believe, we found that about 6% of people had already used an AI tool in some form or fashion to help plan a travel experience. And that increases slightly when you look at the real high frequency travelers and business travelers, but generally it's about, you know, about 6%, about one in 20 people, but 61% of people were open to the idea of using an AI to plan a journey mm. in the future under the right circumstances. So there is a willingness to engage with it there. Now you mentioned trust specifically, and I think that is definitely going to be one of the big barriers to that kind of mass adoption, to getting that 61% from interested to actually using it. And I think specifically, there are a couple of different dimensions of trust. So there's the sort of personal data trust that you mentioned, you know, can I trust that you're using my data responsibly? Can I trust that, you know, by using this tool, I'm not exposing myself to scammers. I'm not putting too much of my information out there, all that sort of stuff. And then there's also the issue of accuracy trust. You know, this comes back to the point we talked about earlier about AI hallucinations and accuracy in general. You know, can I trust that you're going to give me useful and relevant information? And, you know, those two issues collectively, I think, are one of the things that really needs to be addressed to get to mass adoption. I think also, though, when we talk about that data trust issue, we should specify what we actually mean by personal data. Because people have very different thresholds related to what they're willing to share, depending on what that data actually is. So most people we've seen in our research are willing to share things like their preferences, their sort of basic travel needs, their budget. They're willing to share that kind of information with an AI, but it's a very different story when you start getting into more sensitive things like passport information, visa information, information about medical conditions can be a key one, and especially anything to do with people's children, that kind of information people mm. are very sensitive about sharing. So I think that is an issue that can be addressed, those kind of trust issues. And to some extent, it will address itself organically as people use the technology more, become more familiar with it. But I also think it's about A, leveraging your existing brand strength. So, you know, there are a lot of travel brands out there that people already have a lot of trust in. So, you know, people might, people might not feel comfortable sharing their data with chat GPT, but they might be more comfortable sharing it with Expedia or with booking.com, you know, these tools that they've used for a long time that mm. feel very reputable in their minds. So that's kind of one aspect. But then also I think it's about finding the right kind of introductory use cases for people. So the kind of relatively low stakes use cases where you don't need them to share a lot of really sensitive data and kind of use that as a way of getting people familiar with the technology, building consumer trust before you start rolling out applications that really require, you know, stuff like travel documents, visas, passports, medical information, all that sort of stuff. Could you mention, you know, we, we touched a couple of use cases. Could you talk about some use cases maybe that actually is around the whole customer experience, because in principle, that's for me sounds like, you know, low stakes for many people. If I can get my experience 
improve without having to hand over very, very sensitive information, as you just talked about, passports, children, health, and so on. Is there any already existing experiments going on within the travel industry, specific one you can talk about where companies are actually using it at a big scale to, to, to change the way they do customer service? Yeah, of course. I mean, if we're talking about customer service specifically and the very kind of targeted use cases around that, there's a lot of stuff that's been rolled out that's been trialed in various formats. So I think you, know, you start to see uh, a number of hotel chains have experimented with some kind of virtual assistant. So Hilton, I think, has done some stuff around this, like virtual assistant in your room that you can talk to to kind of handle basic queries. If you go even further and sort of look at the more, the kind of intersection of the AI, but also the physical component, you see things like the robots that they have in Heathrow, for example. You know, if you've flown out of Heathrow recently, you can see, they've had them for a few years now, these robots that you can ask questions to and they can direct you to your gate or specific parts of the airport or that sort of thing. Now, I, I think the challenge around a lot of these kind of customer service experiences of using AI is a lot of people have been burned before by previous generations of these kind of chatbot products. You know, we've all had bad experiences where we've been like talking to our bank over the phone and trying to get through to a human operator, going through all of the like very basic chatbot functionality. I think that, you know, the technology has moved on so much just in the past 12 months that people should start to re-examine what they can do here. But you have a lot of inbuilt skepticism around some of this technology that I think is hard to get over. I think also another challenge is that sometimes in the past, there's been a bit too much of a focus on gimmickiness rather than actual consumer value. I think a great example of this is there was a hotel in Tokyo that opened back in 2015 and their whole gimmick was they were the first fully robot powered hotel. They replaced all of their customer service positions in the hotel with robots. And at the time, it got a huge amount of media coverage and attention and people were like, this is the future of the hotel industry. And mm. then four years later, they quietly got rid of most of the robots and replaced them with human customer service agents mm. because they realized that the technology simply wasn't there. So I, I think that things like that have kind of left a little bit of a sour expectation in people's mouths when it comes to customer service interactions with AI, I think that if you want to kind of avoid those pitfalls, I think you need to, firstly, you need to keep it an opt-in experience until people become more comfortable with it. You know, it should be something that people can access and can use to speed up the process, but it shouldn't be the only path that you're funneling people down. You do need the human, the human service layer there to support it. And I think the other thing is that, you know, I think some of the more successful implementations of this, both in the travel industry, but also in other industries as well, some of the more successful implementations have been when businesses have really focused on figuring out how you can make use of the combined efforts of humans and machines. I think, mm. you know, implementing an AI, implementing some sort of physical or virtual robot, you know, that's only half the battle. The rest of it is how do you figure out, okay, now that I've implemented this, now that I've kind of built processes around this, now that I've freed up a lot of the time of my customer support team, how do I find them new things to do to make use of that time in a way that creates value for guests or for travelers? How do I upskill my human workforce? How do I teach them to work around these AIs in a useful way? And I, you know, I, I think ultimately the technology itself 
only gets you so far. I think, you know, we've seen that not just with AI, we saw that a decade or so ago when everyone was talking about robotic process automation before people were talking about it in terms of AI. I think people learned this lesson that people should have learned this lesson that, you know, ultimately it's not about the technology itself. It's about the model that you build that connects your human resources and your machine resources. Yeah, and that becomes very interesting again when talk about the ethics about it. You said there's been the the you know the people the 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 advocates for this, and then there's the whole group of people that says this is like the worst thing humanity ever created. You know that it's going to take over our life. How you know how do you then make sure as a business that you you're walking that fine line? Because I guess do do you have any insights and ideas where you're seeing companies? really good at walking that fine line, not going too gimmicky and going with the technology and then same time, you know, creating the human experience because lots of travel and hospitality is also getting those emotions that only humans can create up to now, I guess. Yeah, I think, are you talking about kind of how you navigate some of the consumer risks and fears around this yeah. space and deploy it in like an effective, but also yeah. kind of ethical way, that sort of question? Yeah, because again, as a consumer, I will ask, are they actually, you know, is it actually ethical for the company to do this? And then, you know, that's the ethical bit, but also how are you going to make it work in principle? Yeah, that that's a really good question. I, I think, you know, ultimately, there are so many concerns and fears around AI out there, particularly within the kind of expert and analyst community. You've mentioned some of them, you know, that's the very, the very kind of sci-fi Terminator yeah. scenarios, what if AI goes rogue and tries to kill us all through to a, a much more mundane, practical concerns, you know, how is it being used? How is it being deployed? How are you making sure that your systems aren't biased? How are you making sure that they're accountable? You know, these sorts of things. And I think navigating all of those kind of different fears and, and complexities is definitely a challenge. I think, you know, generally when we've done research on this and when we've looked at which of these kind of challenges consumers care about the most. Generally, we found that the fears that worry them the most tend to be on the more practical side of things. So they mm. tend to be more worried about, like, how do I protect my personal safety in the age of AI? You know, how do I protect my data from scammers? How can I figure out the difference between AI generated versus human generated content? How's it going to affect my job? That's a huge one. They're more worried about that stuff, less worried about the like more sci fi kind of scenarios. So I think. You know, keeping the focus on those very practical concerns is a big part of how you, how you approach this as a business, if you want to do it in an ethical, responsible way. And I think the practical way that you do that needs to be through accountability. You know, this is one of the big, if you look at the expert literature on this, this is one of the big fears around AI is the notion of an accountability gap. So, you know, mm. if, if you have an AI, for example, that's been used by a bank and decides to deny someone for a loan, for example. Well, who's accountable for that decision? You don't have a human that you can appeal to and that you can, that you can reason with. Um, or to use a travel example, you know, you know, insurance companies are already using AI to decide claims. So if an AI turns down your claim for travel insurance, what do you do? Who's accountable for that decision? So I think keeping the focus on accountability, making sure that you're not using AI as a replacement for human decision-making, you're using it as a tool to enable and empower the humans mm. within your organization has to be central to 
the way that you approach this as a business. And I think it's about also being accountable to a very wide range of stakeholders through those decisions. So, you know, you have to think about accountability both to your customers, your employees, but also kind of the wider public at large. And, you know, one of the ways that you can demonstrate that is through engagement with the kind of emerging regulatory landscape around this sort of space. So if you look at just how quickly the technology has moved in the past year or so, the legal landscape, the public policy landscape around AI has really struggled to keep up. You know, it's really, we don't have a good legal framework in really any country at the moment around some of the challenges that are thrown up by AI. And because of that, these kind of self-organizing industry groups, sort of self-directed regulatory frameworks have had to step into that gap a little bit. And we've started to see a lot of you know, non-profit organizations and like industry consor- consortiums and you know, these sorts of organizations kind of step in and sort of say, okay, here are, here are the frameworks that you need to follow if you're going to use AI in an ethical, responsible way. And I think if you are a business and you want to reassure both your customers and crucially your workforce that you are approaching AI in the right way, I think having some level of engagement with that type of evolving landscape is going to be a crucial component of that. Yeah, because I think it's really interesting because I hadn't even thought about this this conversation, but it just reminds me when you talk about accountability and there's a book called Scary Smart with uh, Mo Gavard, I think he's called, where he actually discusses this whole thing that actually we need to find out who is actually ultimately responsible for, for the outcomes and decisions AI is taking. And again, you always want that human to be able to contact that human if you disagree with something. And if you want to be heard by a human, I guess, not heard by a machine or rejected by a machine. Exactly, exactly. I think, you know, we've seen very consistently in our research on this, that the thing that people are really worried about AI is the context where it feels like it's pushing the human to the side. You know, they are worried about a world in which businesses are completely relying on AI to make decisions. They're worried about a world in which, you know, movie studios use AI to write their scripts instead of human writers, you know, they're worried about these kind of scenarios. But if you can convince them that actually it is a tool being used by humans, I think it's a very different, that's very different. I think, you know, focusing on maintaining that kind of human accountability structure and positioning AI as a tool that changes the work that people do rather than as a replacement for that human labor enables you to view it in a very different context and to create a lot more, a lot more consumer confidence in the products that you're deploying. If you mentioned it before, and you're touching a bit on it again, here, one of the things that I've heard on in the hospitality and travel industry, where they are, people are concerned about AI is going to take over my job. It's gonna, you know, we're talking about non-human operated restaurants. You can always see this pizza kiosk where you can go. There's like no human in there. They heat up a pizza that's been probably lying in there frozen. Principle, just an advanced vending machine in my view, not a not nothing with AI to do. But is, is there any concerns you should have around that? Because it seems like what you're saying is that the customer still demand the human touch points. The really critical human touch point will never be taken over by AI. So that whole fear on job losses have been the massive is not really a reality. And also if you put it in the context of the labor and skill shortage there is within the travel and the hospitality industry right now. 
Yeah, look, I, I don't want to say never. I think it's impossible to predict the speed at which this technology is moving. And if you look at what the what the experts are saying on this, you know, there's massively varying predictions. Some people are yeah. saying we're approaching the limits of the current approaches to AI. We're going to kind of plateau the quality of the available AI products. Other people yeah. are saying, no, we're just getting started. It's going to accelerate from here even more. So, you know, it's very difficult to predict what the technology itself is going to look like, well, even in one month's time, let alone, you know, five, 10 years down the line. But I do think in general, the more immediate question for businesses is around, is around, you know, how does AI not necessarily eliminate jobs, but how does it transform them? Mm. You know, how does it, how does it free up people's time to focus on higher value adding, value adding tasks? And how do you upskill your existing workforce to take advantage of those opportunities? You know, you mentioned the, the labor shortage that we're seeing in hospitality and so many other industries at the moment. And I think this is, you know, a really powerful potential answer to that is being able to say, okay, actually let's use AI to take away a lot of the busy work from people's jobs and allow them to focus on slightly more complex stuff and you know, recognize that they are going to need more skills to do that, that they don't necessarily have at the moment, but you can upskill them. You know, one thing we did a survey recently, we found that over half of people would be interested in taking a training course of some kind to learn AI related skills, whether that's around, you know, just the basic technology or more complex, like how to, how to do prompt engineering, you know, these sorts of things. So there is definitely an interest in there from a number of employees to, to get that training, to, to have that ups, upskilling. And I think that, you know, that's really ultimately going to be the differentiator between which companies are able to successfully deploy AI within their organizations and which aren't. It's going to be which of them are seeing it just as a kind of cheap cost-saving mechanism versus which of them are seeing it as like a more transformative opportunity to reimagine the role that their employees play, to reimagine the type of work that goes on within their business. You know, I, I, an example within the travel industry for that kind of dichotomy of like replacing humans versus augmenting them, BuzzFeed got into some controversy a few months ago because it came out that they had been using AI to write travel articles for their website. Mm -hmm. And people found out that, you know, they were not very high quality at all. You know, you could look at these articles and they were all basically exactly the same template. They all used the same language. There was no originality there. The information was very basic. It wasn't particularly interesting. And you know, that's the sort of thing where you're seen as replacing human talent with AI that really does undermine long-term consumer confidence in your brand. You know, mm. that might not show up immediately. Yeah, it might succeed in driving short-term web traffic, but in the long run, it's not an investment in quality. It's not an investment in brand building. Whereas on the other hand, you know, there are lots of journalists out there, some of whom work for BuzzFeed, some of whom don't, who are using AI day to day to help them with their writing. You know, you talked earlier about using AI as a brainstorming partner. There are lots of use cases for AI for that type of writing, for those types of writing jobs, for those types of journalism jobs. You know, I have friends who work in journalism who are using AI on a day to day basis already. And you know, because they're using it as an enabler and an amplifier for their own talent and creativity, they're getting much better results than that kind of BuzzFeed model of let's just plug some questions into an AI and post the, post the outputs, you know? So it, it really does come down to the mindset there from a business perspective. You know, what is the role of AI within your organization and how does that intersect with your human resources?
Yeah, that was super, super interesting question. A couple of more questions before we finish up, Fergus. The one of them I was thinking about, like if I was the leader in the business and I want to build it as a force for good, and with some of the challenges around AI, what would be your best advice for using AI to build a, a business as a force for good? Yeah, so I, I think one of the main things that it comes down to is we've already covered that notion of accountability, that notion of, you know, you, your approach to AI, particularly the approach to AI from the leaders within your organization needs to be rooted in that sense of accountability. Who are you accountable to as an organization for the use of your AI? And what's, how does the AIs within your organization slot into accountability structures rather than trying to, rather than trying to replace them? Um, and then I think once you have that kind of mindset in place, you can then start thinking through the stakeholder implications of that. So you need to kind of work through both the internal and external stakeholder perspective. So from an internal side, yes, obviously you have, you have the people whose jobs are actually going to be impacted by AI on a day-to-day -day basis. You need to make sure that you're thinking about things from their perspective. You need to make sure that it's creating value for them, or at least creating opportunities for them to take advantage of. But you also need to think about, you know, the management and leadership there within your business, how they're adjusting their leadership style to accommodate these new technologies. You also need to think about the people that are actually building and developing the AIs themselves and how you're, and it seems funny to say, but kind of ethical sourcing of AI, you know, there's been some reports recently about, you know, some of the, some of the data farms in developing countries that are used to train these AI models. And, you know, a lot of it involves, you know, huge amounts of very grueling work with very low pay and can involve looking at some very disturbing images, you know, particularly where you have AI that's designed to, you know, detect abuse on your social platforms or that sort of stuff. So actually thinking about the kind of sourcing of your AI and who's actually building it at a human level, not just the, you know, engineers working in an office somewhere, but the data entry people who are working, you know, around the world on these kind of products. Mm. So that's the kind of like internal behind the scenes stakeholders. And then from an external perspective, obviously you need to think, think about your customers. You need to think about, you know, how are they actually getting value from this product? Again, getting away from that mindset of how can I use it to save money versus how can I use this to actually add value to their experience? But you also need to think about, um, the, the media landscape. You need to think about, you know, there are so many journalists writing stories about AI at the moment. Uh, they're looking for opportunities, both for companies that are deploying it well, but also deploying it poorly. You need to think about your media messaging around AI. You need to think about the kind of um, landscape of AI academics and researchers that you're engaging with. How are you taking their concerns on board? How are you incorporating their perspectives, their voices into the way that you're using AI? Um, and you need to think about your prospective workforce as well. You need to think about the people that might want to work for your organization one day. I think if you are seen as you know, the type of organization that is leading by example, that is looking for, looking for value, creating use cases for AI that is treating it um, with the right level of seriousness, you know, that can be a real differentiator in the job market at the moment. You know, you mentioned the labor shortage, you know, you mentioned that, you know, when people are looking for companies to work for, that can be a really appealing factor if they see a company as an ethical AI leader. And then I think another point to consider is the way that AI intersects with some of the broader social and ethical trends within the travel industry. So this idea of sustainable travel, for example, you know, we're talking about how AI can be a force for good, how we can find 
really compelling, value-adding, ethical use cases for AI. I think sustainability is a huge opportunity. I think when we look at consumers and their interest in sustainability, you know, there are a lot of people out there who want to make more sustainable travel decisions, who want to be more sustainable in their daily lives, but they just don't know where to get started. They don't have the information. They don't know how to evaluate different claims that are made by companies about their sustainability credentials. They don't know how to measure or evaluate their environmental footprint while they're traveling. You know, they just don't have the information. You know, again, that is a thing that AI is really good at, democratizing information, getting that information into people's hands, giving them the, the knowledge and the information to be empowered to make smarter, sustainable decisions. So I, I think, you know, looking at those kind of broader ethical trends within the industry and seeing how AI can be used to accelerate and support some of those trends is another really powerful way that businesses within travel and hospitality can you know, position themselves as leaders in this space. Yeah, it's super interesting you brought up the, the sustainability angle there as well, because lots of people want to do sustainable choices that is in their travel and their food and where they stay and the, the way they travel as well. But they don't know where to start really because there's so much noise around. So actually you can use AI to actually give that knowledge and put that knowledge in the right place. You can really get some competitive edge there and also do the right thing at the same time faster than you normally would as a business. Because all businesses have sustainability challenges connected into their business strategies today. That will be, it's almost a given. That's a part of the foundation for good business strategy. Exactly. And, you know, there's so many ways that AI can support on that, not just in the putting better information into consumers' hands, but also behind the scenes as well. You know, we've already seen a lot of hotels have started using AI-powered HVAC systems to reduce their energy consumption. I saw an article recently about a hotel in Davos that has incorporated AI as sort of a network of sensors throughout its hotel, powered by AI to coordinate all of its waste management. And they were able mm. to cut um, waste management costs by around 30% while also improving sustainability. So, you know, those sorts of like behind the scenes connecting, like that's another thing AI is really good at, connecting the dots where you have all of these different complex systems within your organization that all run on different databases that are all powered by different technologies behind the scenes that are all generating a lot of data on a day-to-day -day basis in very different formats. And you need something to be able to connect the dots there to find trends across those systems to optimize process flows within that, within that kind of complex network. And, you know, again, solving those kind of process challenges can have huge sustainability boosts. So yeah, I, I think there's a ton of ways that AI can uh, empower organizations and individual consumers to, um, you know, really actualize their sustainability ambitions. Is there AI, as I said, we're probably not gonna get around covering everything today, but is there like one question around the AI travel slash hospitality industry you wish to have asked you? And if there is, what is that question? And what would you answer? I, I mean, as you said, there's so much we could cover if we had another couple of hours, but I, I think one thing that's really, really interesting is this question of who is going to benefit from AI. Mm. I think, you know, one thing that we've seen when we been speaking to consumers about this when we've been doing studies on this is you know most people generally think that AI is going to be a net benefit for society. They're excited about the kind of products it can create, the possibilities it can create. 
But when you start looking at a more granular level at who they think is going to benefit, how those benefits are going to be distributed, you start seeing some more concerns and you start seeing a kind of emerging fear among a lot of people that the people that are really going to benefit the most from AI are going to be the people who are already in stable, well-off jobs. It's going to be the CEOs, the white collar workers, the upper middle class professionals. Yeah. Whereas the people that are most at risk from AI or could be competing with AI in the future are more likely to be, you know, uh, artists and creatives, but also manufacturing workers, service workers, and children is another one people are very worried about the long-term implications of AI for. I think that's a really fascinating subject is like the impact that AI is going to have on the generation of kids who are growing up now, who are going to grow up in a world where it's very normalized to interact with these very complex AI systems. You know, how do you develop, how do we as a society develop a whole new kind of social paradigm around that? One fascinating data point came out of a study I was doing recently. We found that 64% um, of parents said that they would teach their children to say please and thank you when interacting with an AI. I think that's really interesting, that idea of like, what are the new behaviors that we're going to try and teach our children to adjust for this world? You know, I know we both have fairly young kids at home. I think if it's something that's very relevant to us, very relevant to society as a whole, it's like, what is the long-term social implications of this generation who are growing up? How are they going to think differently? How are they going to behave differently when they're used to interacting with AI on an almost day-to-day -day basis? Mm. Yeah, I think that's a super, super really relevant question. Who is this actually going to benefit? And that's also an important question to think about as a business leader, as you implement that. Thank you so much, Burgess, for, for coming along. But before we, we say goodbye, where can people find out more about the studies you're doing? How can they connect with you if they want to do that? Where should they go? Michael, thank you. It's been a huge pleasure being able to chat with you. And uh, again, thank you so much for, for having us on. I would say if people want to find out more about our company, National Research Group, or look at our research, our white papers, our blogs, our infographics, et cetera, you can find all of that at nationalresearchgroup.com, our website. We post all of our studies there on a pretty regular basis. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, where we, again, interact with a lot of the stories and the media that are out there. We share a lot of highlights from our research. Just search National Research Group on LinkedIn. If you want to follow me personally, Again, LinkedIn is probably the best place. I normally accept connection requests I get over there. I'm always very happy to chat with people about our research, about trends in hospitality or other industries. I'm very happy to interact and chat over there. Great, Fergus. Sending you uh, and team power and energy on your continuous journey and learning more about AI. Perfect. Been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate that you're listening here. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, Please share with others, rate it or give it a review or subscribe to one of our channels which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading books is key to become a great leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the books that have impacted the guests here on the show and myself over the years. Find it on Hospitality Mavericks website, hospitalitymavericks.com under the reading list. A big thank you to BizTemple for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at BizSimply.com or on their social at BizSimply or BizSimplyHQ. You can also email them directly at podcast at BizSimply.com 
If you have any ideas, feedback for the show, or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or my email, michael at hospitalitymaverick.com. I'm Michael Tingsell, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!